Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh. I'm joined by my sister, Tessa King. Today, we have a special guest, Jean Muntrath. She is the author of a book called If I Live Until Morning. She's going to tell us her amazing survival story that starts when she and her boyfriend set out to ski the John Muir Trail in the 1980s on skinny Nordic skis. For those of you who don't know, the John Muir Trail is a trail that's over 200 miles long. It's in the Sierra Nevada mountain range of California. It's a world famous trail connecting the Yosemite Valley to Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the United States. This is a total elevation gain of 47,000 feet. All was going well on this journey until the duo encountered a storm on Mount Whitney that would forever change Jean's life. Hey, Jean. So great that you could join us today. Thank you so much for being here. I'm delighted to be part of this conversation. Thank you. Oh, well, we're delighted to be part of this conversation as well. Very much so. Yay. So please tell us a little bit about your love for the mountains and how you ended up on the John Muir Trail. Is that right? Am I saying <laughs> it right? That's correct. Um, well, I grew up in Colorado, which is where I live now, although I've lived in a variety of places in the West, like California and Wyoming and Montana, et cetera. But um, I grew up skiing. I grew up camping. I, you know, I've always just loved the mountains. Like, they feed my soul. I have to have mountains um, in view. So that's critical for me. Uh, when I was living in Southern California, actually, when I was going to college, uh, I met uh, this man named Ken. And actually, within the first 15 minutes of meeting him, uh, we were just exchanging stories, you know, about what we did in the summer, because this was in the fall semester of one of our college years. And uh, he said he had just hiked the John Muir Trail. And I had wanted to do that the, the year before. And then the situation was that I wasn't able to do that. And so I was really intrigued by his stories. And so he kind of told me about his trip. And when he was finished, he just looked at me. It was a quite strange moment. And he said, my dream is to ski the John Muir Trail in winter, but I need someone to do it with. And oh I goodness. knew at that moment this was going to happen. <laughs> and since I already knew how to ski, you know, I knew how to downhill ski, and I'd done a little bit of backcountry skiing. I certainly um, would get better as the years went by as we were training and whatnot. Um, it didn't seem totally impossible. It's like, okay, I guess I'll do it this way. I'm just really impressed because the skis that you use to do this trail are, like, it's unimaginable to me. I, I cannot I believe them. it. You have them still? <laughs> There's the broken ski. Oh, my goodness. That's and amazing. There's the uh, the boots. I wow. That that. Uh, that are more like tennis shoes, right? Yes. <laughs> no metal edges. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. It's so impressive. <laughs> have, you, have you done backcountry skiing since all of this, like on the newer gear? Um. I have to some degree. So the, the gear that people are using today, no. Like, I'm just amazed about this gear. And, um, you know, I, I improved my skis over the years, and I still have held on to some that are kind of more emotional attachments, <laughs> you know, in our garage. I'm not ready to let go of. But the new super gear where you're pinning down your heels and all that, no. And I actually think about even my metal-edged cross-country skis from the 80s, like what would it have been like to ski the John Mutrell on metal edges with stiffer boots? It would have been amazing. Oh, my gosh. So much easier, you know. 
So, of course, now I know people, a lot of people have seen the John Muir Trail. Back mm-hmm. then, um, very, very, very few people were. Um, but I also feel like it was kind of a, a good accomplishment that we did it on the type of gear we did. Oh, you yeah. Know, with heavy packs on. It was pretty amazing. It's pretty, it's mind-blowing, honestly. <laughs> it blows yeah. my mind. Yeah. Where did the idea to do it in the winter come from? Actually, um, Ken read a book uh, about a man named Orlan Bartholomew. And the book is called uh, High Odyssey. And uh, the book is about Orlan Bartholomew, who was a winter snow surveyor in the early 1900s. You know, when they, they would pay people to go skiing and snowshoeing in the mountains to record the snow data mm-hmm. that was needed for agricultural and industrial purposes. And so Orlan Bartholomew was one of these snow surveyors. And he actually was the first person to ski the John Trail on wooden skis, you know, <laughs> even equipment that made ours look really great. Um, and Ken was really impressed by that. And that's what inspired him. That's really cool. So yeah. how much time, how much time did it take to prepare for this trip? Like with all the food, uh, food prep and everything? training years years Years. yeah I would say about three years I mean we did a lot of physical training we honed our skiing skills we did a lot of winter camping we actually did several trans-sierra ski trips so the John Muir Trail is you know about 210 miles we added oh another 20 miles and several more passes it's normally like I don't know 12 passes and we did 14 because we had these food caches that we had to go in and out of the mountains to get Mm -hmm. but it took years of physical training we did these week-long Trans-Sierra trips to train for it as well. And then, of course, the logistics of trying to get the lightest gear possible, especially for that time period. You know, that's something I envy with the younger generation. They got this really great gear. You especially know. the tent. Yeah. Especially. Right? <laughs> Although we were proud of our, our little tent and our uh, lightweight tent. But then, you know, we had to plan the food. And, you know, you, you can't make errors with that. You've got to have enough food and fuel. And then we had four caches that um, were skied into the mountains for about a week, you know, apart. Mm-hmm. So we'd have that food. So a long time in the planning. Yeah. How much time did you set aside to do this trip? Uh, in our original itinerary, I think we were allowing just short of a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't take us that long. Uh, it was more like, of course, the accident, you know, threw up our, our timing. Absolutely. Of things, how long we stayed out in the mountains. But. Um, I think we were out a total of around 24 days, give or take a few. Um, we had really good skiing conditions when we finally hit the trail. And there were days we skied from sunset to sunup, you know, making 17 miles a day and whatnot, mm-hmm. which is impressive on these little skis. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we got ahead of schedule. So tell us a little bit about that trip. Like, obviously, you were really enjoying yourself in the beginning of the trip sounds yeah. like it was beautiful. You did a really good job in your book describing the scenery. Thank you. It was it was magical. I mean, to be transported on this magical white carpet, you know, and the snow is always changing both in a beautiful way in terms of like its coloring and its texture, but also it's challenging. You know, it's either easy or you're sinking up to your waist in these pits of rotten snow mm-hmm. um, and avalanche debris. But it was magical. Just the views were stunning. Uh, we were having a really, really good time. I know I mentioned in my book, which you will recall, at some point, though, I had this gut feeling that something terrible was going to happen, and I couldn't quite nail where that was going to come from um, or if it was going to manifest into reality. But all in all, the trip was great. It was just the ending of the trip that was really terrible. For sure. Um 
so just on that topic of feeling like there's something like something is going to happen did once you started feeling that feeling did it remain with you throughout the rest of the trip or was it just one of those things where you felt that way that apprehension and you just put shoved it away and just focused on what you were doing well I had that feeling really strong like for a few hours and I was having kind of this internal battle because I thought about speaking up and saying hey we should just bag it um, and then I was evaluating who I was with. So Ken was a very science-based, logical person. And I just felt that he was going to laugh at me. And I'm more of an intuitive person. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, you should listen to those gut feelings. Um, but I also felt like he was just going to say, why? We've trained for years and I just want to give it up, you know, on a gut feeling. So I kind of pushed it out of my mind and once in a while it would come back, but it didn't have the same intensity. I just focused on enjoying the trip and things were going really quite well, all things considered. So, you know, I didn't know what that was going to be. And then, then we were at the moment of truth. If you could do it all over again, would you have climbed (laughs) Mount Whitney when you did, or would you have kind of heeded the warning of those, were they forest service rangers that were telling you that there was a storm that was on the horizon um, what was your feeling at that point when you were making that, that last final push for Mount Whitney? Mm-hmm. Um, if you could go back in time, obviously mm-hmm. you would probably do a lot of things differently as we all would <laughs> in life. Right, right. But do you think you would have made the case for like waiting it out before you climb Mount Whitney? It seemed like the weather was really, um, the worst. It was like, it was like the crux, if you will, in this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, when the rangers said that the storm was coming in, it was pretty undefined when. Okay. Um, but, that, but that said, they did say if things go bad, go down the north face, which was not a good thing to have planted. Now, I don't want to blame them. I have sure. to be responsible for my own decisions, you know. But what I would change is we could have started earlier in the morning mm-hmm. or I think the, the real take-home message for me is, and I see this, you know, when I read other survival stories, particularly in the mountains, is people often, you're going a different route down, or you want to escape a route, so you, you go a different way than what you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. So I think what I would have done is, you know, it's hard to know because you're not in that situation directly, but I think it would have been best just to go back down the west face, which is the way we came up. You know, we didn't really entertain that idea, mostly because lightning was zapping around, and it was a bit of a ways to traverse to get back the way we came but that might have been the smarter choice to do. And, and you're right. If there's one, just one thing I could undo in my life, that would be changing how Mount Whitney unfolded. Cause obviously I'm still paying for it. It's just so weird because these moments, there's no way of planning for them and there's no way really of avoiding them. But truthfully, well, mm-hmm. go ahead. Well, that's just the nature of life. You know, moment to moment, we're all making decisions and split second decisions we're doing the best we can in a given moment, but we don't know which decisions might have dire consequences, you know, for us or for others. Yeah. And in hindsight, looking back, we always think, oh, should have, could have, would have. Right. But <laughs> you don't have the luxury of the knowledge of the future in the moment. Right. Right. Did you want? Yeah. Well, for our listeners, would you mind describing what the descent of Mount Whitney was like? Yeah, um, I always like to clarify, so the why we were on a backcountry wilderness ski trip, we were not 
skiing down the mountain, okay? okay. Um, there are people today that do have some extreme skis and quite the skills, and they are going down the same way we came down. Um, I wouldn't have entertained that on our equipment or with our skill level at that point in time. But basically, we had our skis strapped to the sides of our backpacks, and uh, we had our ice axes with us. And um, Ken went down first, and it was quite steep. And Ken was uh, cut steps down for his toes, and then I followed kind of into the toes using my ice axe. And the first part of going down the mountain, we were literally hanging off of oh our ice axes, you know, so the tip half an inch into the snow and all of our weight, all of our skis, backpacks, everything hanging off that. At some point, Ken turned around to the sitting position. I'm guessing because the, he felt the snow was softer or something because it was pretty hard snow and some ice. He hit a patch of ice and just flew out of my sight down the mountain. So I obviously was concerned, quite scared, but I just held on to my sex and continued down for hours going very slow and stopping every now and then and hanging and yelling and never heard anything from him. So it was a painstaking ordeal of many, many hours going down. Well, and just think about how tired your arms probably were after that initial segment because you were using your <laughs> arms so much. Yeah, I don't really remember that part. I was... You know, I remember the adrenaline and I remember the don't mess up. You've got to concentrate like you cannot make an error. You're going to fly into space. And so it was just this moment of, well, hours of intense focus to get down. And then later there was mixed terrain with some rocks and you could kind of walk around. So it was, was more variable then. So he slid down the mountainside and mm -hmm. you didn't know if he was okay. But then once you got down no. to, to his level, he had some injuries but was like remarkably doing well con considering the fall, correct? Um, yeah, with a little modification. So I got down, I don't know, uh, maybe some, many hundreds of feet later, and then I got to a point where I could actually look down the mountain because higher up I could only see between my feet, you know, it was just white. Mm -hmm. And when I could see Ken, he was still several hundred feet below me, and he was kind of waving his arms to let me know he was alive because I didn't even know that. Mm -hmm. And then he actually climbed back up the mountain to join me at the point that I was at, and then we descended together, and then we separated, and that's when I took my fall. So what was going through your head when you decided to go down? Because he was going to go get his backpack, right? Did it have mm -hmm. a rope in it or something? Right. So when he fell and he landed, he just left his pack for whatever reason. And it did have a climbing open that, you know, we had some ice climbing um, safety gear and all that. So he just left that, flew up the mountain to meet me. And then as we down climbed together, we got to this cliff and we were kind of forced into it because other rocks were glazing, you know, so we were kind of redoing our route as we descended. And uh, there was just this cliff band of, I'm guessing 20 feet, maybe 30. I mean, it wasn't very much. And he down climbed it and he said, stay here, I'll go get the rope. And, you know, he just down climbs it easy and then gets to this ramp and he voids the cliff below. So there's like a 20 foot section and this ramp. He goes around and I'm up there and the light is fading. It's getting dark and it's storming again. And I'm thinking, well, I'm strong. I mean, I'm at my physical peak of my life. I'm sure. strong. I can do this too. Um, so another poor decision, right? And I didn't... Uh, 
he didn't think about, well, he's taller than I am. I have 35 pounds on my back. He had nothing on his back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all of those, I, you know, I can't reach those same poles. And so I started to down climb. And of course, I was committed. And at one point, I realized I couldn't move up. I couldn't move down. I couldn't move sideways. And I was hanging on for dear life, just hoping I wouldn't fall. But obviously, I did. So in, in your book, you describe the fall, but you don't really have a lot of memory of it. It didn't sound like it just was so fast. Yeah, I, you know, I remember the moment before I fell, I had the mental thought of, God, don't let me fall. And then everything went black and I could hear things. So I heard my body and my pad went bang, bang, bang on the rock, but I couldn't see anything. So yeah, that's my memory. It's pretty, pretty weird. Oh, it's pretty eerie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What's the first thing you remember? Uh, after the fall, mm-hmm. I remember um, opening my eyes and Ken pulling on me, literally, and saying something like, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And he's pulling on me and trying to drag me across the snow. And because, again, it's starting to get dark and mm-hmm. he wants to set up camp. And uh, so he's dragging me across the snow and I get up and I'm I'm literally kind of falling and collapsing. I get up, I fall and I'm collapsing until we get to a, a place where it's small enough where he can stomp down the snow and set up our tiny tents, you know, on the mountainside. Did you have any idea what your injuries were like? Uh, initially, I knew I was really injured because I was wiping the blood out of my eyes. Um, I had a head injury. And so that was the first obvious thing, but I was having trouble walking. And, you know, when he, he laid me on the side of the mountain where the tent was going to be, then he went back and got his pack and got the tent. And um, during that time, I remember kind of assessing like, wow, I'm really, really hurting. My back is not feeling right. And there's blood everywhere. And I'm feeling ready to lose consciousness. So yeah, I knew I was severely hurt. Yeah. I just can't believe with the extent of your injuries that you had to stay in the tent for three days waiting for this storm to pass. That is right. unreal. And and you yeah. didn't have use of your, your bladder, correct? No. Yes. I mean, if you've ever had to pee really bad and you had to wait a couple hours while well, you experienced no, nothing, because yeah, I, I could urinate mm, in a day, maybe a half a cup with a lot of effort um, because my bladder was damaged um, with the, all the fractures in my lower mm-hmm. back and pelvis. I, I'm just so surprised that you didn't get a bladder infection. Um, <laughs> so am I. You know, like that's shocking. Yeah, and maybe I did and I was just oblivious to it because when I got to the hospital, you know, the IVs and sure. who knows what was all in, all in that, you know, I mean, um, the bladder was kind of they were looking at bigger issues. Right. I do remember being <laughs> in the hospital, and, and and I had a lot of pain. But the worst pain after five days is I had to pee, and I remember screaming, "Catheterize me!" And they're like, "Oh, we have to take X-rays." And I'm like, "Good God!" You're like, just stick <laughs> it <Please>. in there. <laughs> <laughs> I will forever be more um, appreciative that my bladder and all of the mechanisms yeah. to empty it are working. Please do, because <laughs> <laughs> that is a horrible, horrible feeling. Yes. So what was the mindset that you had trying to get out of this place? I mean, it took you two days, correct, to leave, to get all the way to medical attention? Yeah. Um, Well, I kind of had two mindsets. I guess they played into each other. So when I was laying on the mountain because the storm was 
raging and we were trying to decide, you know, what is the best course of action and reminding your listeners that this is 1982. There are no cell phones. There are no emergency locator beacons. You know, none of this exists. So you need to get yourself out or. Or that's it. Yeah. Or you die. Right. Yeah. You know, we were a week ahead of schedule. As I mentioned, we had skied so fast um, that um, our parents had our itinerary, but there was no reason to worry. So another you were ahead of time. That. Right. If we had been on time and then delayed, you know, there might have been some action initiated. But when I laid there on the mountain, I think I mentioned in my book that um, I realized, you know, my injuries were so severe. I was in severe shock. I was losing a lot of blood. I mean, I had every reason not to be alive. And I knew the only thing I had in my favor was my mind. I couldn't control what was going on with my body. And so that's when I just got this mantra that came to me that, I'm going to live, I'm going to live, I'm going to live. And and I said that for the days we were in the tent, literally nonstop, unless they were sleeping or having a conversation with the cannon. I didn't say it out loud. It was more of an internal mantra to just keep me going. And I made this vow the night after my injuries, before I went to sleep, that if I lived until morning, I would live my greatest dreams, and hence the title of my book. And so when it actually came time to get up and, walk or sink as the case may be um, through the snow to get out of the mountains um, when I left Mount Whitney I thought I was just leaving like I'll never come back to this mountain again and as you know I have but uh, at that time my mindset was my dreams like I, I would collapse literally in the snow and think I couldn't go any further and I would just every time think about going to the Himalayas and all the things that were important to me because I was only 22 you know I had a whole mm-hmm. life ahead of me or I thought I did and I wanted it to be so I would just remember my dreams and I'd force myself up, you know, and um, I managed, which is pretty amazing because you know, with all of my injuries, you know, I had 35 pounds on my broken back and pelvis and, and I had gangrene. I think I mentioned that. And um, I, I just wanted, I wanted to live. And so I sank through snow. I crawled over rocks. I crossed icy streams. You know, we had 7,000 vertical feet to descend um, with all my injuries and, so, yeah, it's amazing I'm here. It is amazing. And maybe part of it is that, um, you know, psychologically, you were already 50% of the way there when you just woke up the next day after your injuries, you yeah. know? Yeah, right. So, I mean, I knew I made it that far, but I knew there were no guarantees. And I thought, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die trying to get out. You know, I'll do my best. So That's amazing. That my mindset. <laughs> How long were you in the hospital? Um. So, first, when I got... Um, to Lone Pine Hospital, which is a very tiny, tiny hospital. It's actually more of a, a geriatric facility, to be honest. They have two beds for emergency patients, even to this day. So that's just something. Um, nowadays, they fly people to Los Angeles, but in those days, they didn't do that. Um, anyway, I was in that hospital for nine days, and then my mother actually brought a station wagon and um, from a friend and transported me with IV bags and everything laying in the back. It would never happen today, but <sighs> it did then. <laughs> and then I was transferred to a hospital, Scripps in San Diego, and I was there for another week. And then I was sent home, and I actually stayed with my mother and literally was cared for. I was in bed for four months, so it was a long year. <laughs> what was the recovery like in that year? Oh, actually, it was difficult. Uh, I was you know, again, times are different now, you know, then they wanted you to be flat and not moving in bed to heal your bones. And that's not how things would be approached today. 
so I, I read a lot of books. I watched television. I slept a lot because when your body gets um, injured, the amount of energy you need to heal is phenomenal. I ate a lot of high-calorie foods because I was really, really thin after this ordeal. Um, and I didn't get much physical therapy um, for whatever reason. I'm not sure why. Um, I was on a lot of painkillers. Uh, and I, I think if I'd gotten the physical therapy you get today or if I'd gotten more even then, that would make me a, a much – it made me in a better situation today than I am. But it is what it is. So the dreams that you had wished for, that mm-hmm. was the main thing was going to the Himalayas, right? Yeah, I wanted to see Mount Everest and these big mountains. You know, I grew up in Colorado, so I love mountains. But I love the Sierras even more than the Rockies, I have to say. But the Himalayas – I mean, they're on a whole nother scale of things. You know, they're twice as high as the mountains that we live in. And uh, just amazing. Yeah. So that was my dream. Do you think that you um, ended up finding Buddhism and um, more mindful living because of all of the pain that you were living through just secondary to all of your injuries? Absolutely. You know, when I went to Nepal, I've been there many times and, as you know, I've worked there and all that, but I felt like the culture was so different and it made me stand back and question all of the things I had grown up to believe Mm -hmm. Uh, because this was a very different reality over there. And I saw the hardship that people were living under really difficult conditions. And yet they seemed a lot more content than we are here in the West and we have everything right. So that got my attention. So I started reading a lot of Eastern philosophy and it really resonated with me. And then the more I was dealing with uh, chronic pain and just kind of soul searching how to work my way through all of this. um, Yeah, it's it's been very beneficial. And I think that's what kind of paved the way for me. Um, In your book, you mentioned identifying the ski tracks ahead of you when you were on the John Muir Trail. Yes. And so whose tracks were these, Jean? And do you think that that... um, chance encounter with those ski tracks was part of your destiny I know that sounds super cheesy but (laughs) no I I, I do think it it was very karmic Uh, so yeah Ken and I remarked on these ski tracks uh, because there weren't people skiing the John Ridge Road you know you just didn't see many ski tracks unless you were nearing a town and they were headed off kind of isolated to this mountain and I I remember we had this conversation like what is this person doing and so, yeah, so the story is I didn't know this person, and um, I met this person, but not knowing it was his ski tracks. Uh, so, the, so the ski trip was in 82. I met this person in 1986 because he showed up at Rocky Mountain National Park where I was working as a park ranger. We became friends, and then he wound up, you know, doing his life and working in other parks and traveling around the world, et cetera. And it was, we stayed in touch, but it wasn't until... Um, I asked my friend Paul, this ranger I just described, to um, come back and help me because I was in so much chronic pain again. And he was living in India at the time and getting ready to come back to the U.S. So I said, please just stay for six weeks and get me more physical therapy and all that. And and so as part of the therapy, he would drive me, you know, an hour away to get good therapy. And um, he said, I need you to read your journal. I think that'd be really beneficial for you as part of your healing. So I would read out loud to him while we drove down. And one day I read that passage about these ski tracks and was like, wait, I think those are mine. And it's like, no. Wow. And so um, the reason he could correlate that information was I had the date in my journal 
and he was working in the Mammoth uh, ski area for the Forest Service um, that winter and was getting ready to go work at Grand Teton National Park and did one last ski trip and to climb um, Mount Ritter, I think it was. And so he was able to trace down the dates because of the end of employment and starting the employment and all that. And those were his ski tracks. So anyway, this is like 14 years later, we're still together. <laughs> that is awesome. And what a weird coincidental thing. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty cool. <laughs> Tell me about this doctor that uh, Paul had talked to you about. So, you know, I had a variety of different physical therapy around 2007 when I was having severe chronic pain. Like I could barely walk five feet across my kitchen. I was using a walker. It was pretty bad. So I was doing really well. I hiked for like 20 years and then I was doing really bad and I'm hiking again, but I'm getting older. So, you know, not quite as adventurous as before, as much as my spirit is anyway. But um, I was really trying to heal on every level and um, my friend Paul because he'd lived in India and Nepal he had seen this doctor there Dr. Um, Sarbatham uh, Shrestha do this amazing work with people that normally wouldn't be able to be healed and he said I think you should go see this doctor and I was desperate I mean I would do anything to be able to get on with my life and hike again and and I didn't think it was possible to make that journey by airplane you know but I did and uh I saw this doctor for seven weeks, three times a week, and he did miracles for me. It was very painful, but um, I surrendered to his torturous treatments, and they helped so much. That's I, amazing. Yeah, I, I feel indebted to him. Yeah. Do you feel like yeah. that changed the, the progression of everything? Like, have you felt pretty good since that point in time or been able to have a better baseline at least? Oh, much better baseline. Yes. Um, I really started um, being able to do some skiing again and snowshoeing and hiking. In fact, then I was set up so we could return to Mount Whitney. So that was really lovely. Um, so that's helped a lot. You know, I still kind of have to stretch every day and I still work with occasional pain. And so it's not like I'm, you know, forever Mount Whitney's not with me because it is. Um, I'm getting rolfed again right now. I really believe in rolfing. So I've done that several times, the, the series, and so I'm doing that right now for this winter. And yeah, so keeping at it. Well, later in life, you returned to Mount Whitney and found Ken Ski and your Nordic boot bottom, which you showed off to us. Um, yes. Did you feel like you were able to have some closure, a sense of resolution when you came back to the mountain? I did. You know, I think what happens to people that deal with some sort of physical and or emotional trauma, whatever it is, we want to kind of push those things out of our life, like just don't acknowledge and don't deal with them. But I think the truth is to really heal and you have to go back and you have to face it um, and really deal with it. And so even though I thought I'd never go back to Mount Whitney, I was actually doing some trauma therapy at the time. And I started getting curious about the mountain. I actually got in Google Earth, which was new. And, and I was like exploring the mountain again. I was like, wow, maybe I should go back. And I got curious. Where Are my skis there? And so I trained for that. And that was good for getting stronger. And then... It was really interesting. Um, Paul and his friend Jonathan uh, went with me. And when we got to the Whitney Russell Cole, we had come around to the west face of the mountain where my fall was, I asked them at that point, let me lead. And so I did. And of course, it's the summertime now, and I'd only been there in the winter. But I walked right to where we had camped. Um, of course, there wasn't many places you could camp. And, excuse me. And I. I'm standing there on what I call death campsite because I felt like death had visited me there. I'm looking up at the cliffs and I just 
I just lost it. I started bawling. And that's when uh, Jonathan said, hey, look over there. And there was Ken's skis. And so the two of them were looking for my other skis and kind of up on more of the cliffs. And I stayed lower down. And that's when I found the heel of my boot. But I think the turning point for me was to face the place where I had died or thought I would die. And and to really stand there and absorb what had happened and how that had changed me. And I think the, the crux of the moment for me was to realize that when we make a big mistake in our lives that has such difficult and dire consequences, it's easy to sort of hate ourselves or would have, should have kind of thing and regret. And I realized I hadn't forgiven myself. And that that was really important to say, yeah, I made a, I made a poor choice. We all make poor mm-hmm. choices. Some have bigger consequences than others, but I did the best I could at that moment in time. And it was really important for me just to say that and see that. And I found that was helpful. So kind of that package was very uh, cathartic for me. Um, I thought it was interesting as a side note that you mentioned the special bracelet that you had that was the equivalent to the Buddhist rosary that you'd been carrying around for a long time. And the fact that um, it broke and the beads scattered all over in the rocks and to yeah. me, it's sort of, I know that you were devastated, but it sort of seems symbolic in that, you know, mm-hmm. if you hadn't had that experience on Mount Whitney, you would probably never would have acquired those beads in the first place. Possibly not. I mean, the, it's really amazing when I look back on it. And of course, when I was writing my book and, you know, re-editing, it was like, there's just a lot of interesting coincidences, but are they coincidences, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's pretty amazing the different things that just kind of came together and played out that all felt very karmic to me. Yeah, I mean, it really, your story, coincidentally, or whatever you want to call it, uh, mm-hmm. it really wrapped it, itself up into a nice bow at the end. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was really <laughs> struggling as I was writing it, because my main intention of writing it was just to heal myself, and I didn't know I was going to actually put it out into the world, and I thought, well, this is a pretty powerful story. Maybe other people can look at their own traumas, obviously, through different lenses, but maybe that will inspire them either to live their dreams or to find courage to heal whatever that they carry around. And I, I just, I felt like I didn't know how I was going to end it, but then it just kind of ended itself for me, you know, so I kind of wrapped it up and yeah, so it's a pretty solid memoir. So you ended up marrying Ken, but things kind of went south with that relationship mm-hmm. and he never wanted right. to face those traumas of Mount Whitney like you had. And I guess that's the biggest probably that's the most regrettable thing about your book is just the fact that he never had the opportunity to really face those demons. I, I so agree. And I, I think, you know, maybe our relationship could have played out differently if we had been able to talk about it, but he just didn't want to go down that path. I think a lot of mountaineers, you know, don't want to always acknowledge the mistakes we've made. I don't know if that was part of it or if there was some guilt or just kind of what was in that. But I do remember when I was writing my book, uh, I, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if I had his side of the story? Can you imagine mm-hmm. what a richer story that would be? Like, what was it like for him to watch me fall? What was going through his head in that sense and afterwards? And just, it would have been really interesting to know. And, and of course, I wished he had that opportunity to heal, but sadly that wasn't granted to him. Yeah, what I was kind of thinking when I was reading it is that he probably felt regret just in terms of the way that things played out for you, you know, because obviously mm-hmm. he really loved you and maybe he felt responsible for that accident, like it was his fault somehow. 
I think that's quite possible, especially because the, the trip was his idea. You know, I never held him responsible. Again, I, I want to always own that I made whatever decisions that I made and those consequences are mine and not somebody else's. You know, I think especially in today's age, it's so easy to people like to blame other people for their problems and owning it is a much healthier thing to do for everybody. Well, it's just refreshing to hear anyone actually say those words out loud that you just said. Yes, <laughs> we make mistakes, we're human and uh, it, it's okay, you know? Yeah. And yeah. After all this, what are you doing with yourself these days? <laughs> well, I'm, um, I've been retired from the National Park Service for a couple of years. Uh, so I am enjoying not working. Uh, I certainly like to get out and uh, hike as much as I can. Um, Paul and I bought a camper van and fixed it up uh, a year ago. So we've actually been on the road more than we've been at home. <laughs> and so we're doing a lot of great hikes and exploring, and, and that's quite fun. And, you know, I'm certainly doing some stuff around the house and entertaining some other books that I might write in the future. So I'm very busy, but a lot of bicycling and as I mentioned I'm getting rolls this winter to try and get my body back in gear because I still got some dreams that I need to, to uh, live as soon as COVID is no longer a problem I hope to do a lot more world traveling and whatnot but uh, for now that's on hold. What's next on your list? Well I don't know what's next I'll say what's highest on my okay. list. Okay. <laughs> um, my big dream is um, I've been to Tibet and many different parts of the Himalaya as you know um, that's where my heart is but I specifically want to go to Mount Kailash um, in western Tibet. And it's the most sacred mountain on the planet to the most people. And there's, you kind of circumambulate it. And it's a big journey. And it's a very high altitude and very rigorous. So I was actually going to do that a couple months before or a couple months after COVID hit. And we had to cancel that trip. So I don't know when it will be safe to go to that part of the world because the vaccinations need to catch up over there. But uh, that's what I really want to do. Well, maybe what you should do in the meantime is come back up to Montana and um, visit Glacier Park <laughs> <Yeah>. again. <laughs> I think I will be, and maybe I'll look you up. So we were, uh, the last three summers, we've been trying to get to British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the first summer after, when I was retired, I was in a lot of pain at the end of a lot of trips in this year. And I like, I can't do this now. I want to really enjoy it. So then we were going to do it last year and of course the country was closed they couldn't go to Canada and then this year we we're going to go to Montana and Canada because I have a lot of um, friends that live in um, the Glacier area and the Yellowstone area and as it turns out then the wildfires hit so okay so maybe next year <laughs> I'm sure hoping so this... I may just look you up and have some coffee with you yeah the stars will align <laughs> yet again yeah <laughs> right <laughs> indeed <laughs> um, is there anything else that you have to add about your story, your life, um, and maybe words of wisdom for um, for anyone? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I do. Let me think for a moment. That was um, kind of a loaded question, I realize. <clears throat> yeah, that's all right. I'll, let me think on it. Um, I guess I would just reiter reiterate a few things. One is it's really important that people follow their dreams. Um, within the constraints that we all operate within, whatever those are, and adjust your dreams according to one's abilities or financial situations or whatever that may be. I, I really believe that that's what keeps us going in life and gives us meaning in life. So follow your dreams. I also think it's really important to realize the shortness of life. And COVID has been a good reminder of that. And I wish more people would actually think about 
life and how precious it is. And while we're healthy is the time to do things. You know, don't take your health for granted because when you don't have it, you'll realize it is the single most important asset that you have. Right? You don't have your health, you can't do anything. And so please take care of yourselves because life is beautiful and you should get the most out of it. And I guess as far as other wisdom goes, just if you have any baggage or any challenges, um, heal them. Do everything you can to heal them. Talk about them. Face them. Get through them. And, and you can. It takes courage. But if, if I can get through what I've gotten through, I know other people can heal whatever is ailing them. And I really think that's important, again, to get the most out of life. And uh, just live life well. I mean, cherish every day. And if you make a mistake, forgive yourself and own it. <laughs> yeah. And it's okay. That was very well said. You summed it all up. (laughs) I'm just going to rewind this and listen to that part over and over and over and over again. Just for my own, my own personal. uh, Health and wellness. Yeah, exactly. There you go. That's my health and wellness talk. (laughs) Yes. We appreciate it so much. And I have to say that I think you're one of the bravest women that I've ever talked to. Um, I think that all of the things that you have done have been incredibly brave. Well, you know, sometimes I'm a little, uh, not feeling courageous, but I go forth anyway. For for instance, I don't really like to fly in an airplane. Okay. (laughs) But I want to go places. Mm -hmm. I want to see the world. And I have, um, there's more I want to see. So I'll just do what it takes to, you know, get from A to B, you know, whatever that takes. So, yeah. Yeah. Within, within reason, of course, I think it's good <laughs> to be cautious and evaluate what you're doing. But yeah, those dreams are calling. Uh, I got to go do them. That's so awesome. Thank you so much, Jean, for taking the time out of your day, um, for responding to my email and everything. Um, it's really awesome. Yeah. We really my appreciate pleasure. it. Thank you for your thank words you. of wisdom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And thank you for the work that you're doing. I do think it's important to tell stories that are meaningful to people and get them to think about their own lives and the context that we all we all live in. So thank you guys so much for tuning in to our story this week and listening to Jean Montreth's story. You might want to check out her website at jeanmontreth.com. Um, also, consider picking up her book. You can get it on Amazon, and the book is titled if I live until morning. All of those proceeds go to charity. So it's pretty awesome. Thanks, Jean. You're a treasure. We appreciate you. You really are. It's true. And we don't get to tell stories about ladies enough on this show. It's probably because we got it together. I was actually just thinking about what the movie would be like the whole time I was reading her book. Yeah. Any producers out there? (laughs) Yeah. I think we should actually write a screenplay for this. We should have asked Jean who we wanted to play her. (laughs) we can ask her that um at a future interview that sounds good well and to you listeners thank you so much for your input we are getting emails at the crux survival at gmail.com we love hearing from you and in fact a throwback to last week's episode about lorraine johnson and her snake bite if you haven't heard it go listen we had an email from lauren from australia hey lauren hey lauren Yeah, so we were talking about what to do in case of a snake bite. And one of the big not-to-dos is don't apply a tourniquet, which Casey and I didn't know why that was, you know, put on the website of what not to do. But Lauren reached out and said, the reason you don't apply a tourniquet is that snake venom does not travel through the bloodstream. 
In fact, it travels through the lymphatic system. So if you are applying a tourniquet to an area, it won't stop the venom spreading through your system. And actually, you might lose a limb because of using a tourniquet. So don't do that. And she also said the best thing to do in a snake bite situation is not move and call for help. The lymphatic system works on movement. So the more you move, the more the venom moves. Ergo, the quicker you die. That's not good. No. I really appreciate this information and it makes sense that it's coming from an Australian native because you guys have a lot of creepy crawlies. Hook us up with an email if you have anything to add slash if you want to recommend a story slash you just want to praise us. Or if you just want to say hi. Yeah. That's cool too. Hi. (laughs) All right. Have an awesome week. I hope that you enjoyed Jean's story as much as we did. Yeah, stay alive until next week, guys. Stay alive. Bye-bye.